Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, an international menopause expert, author, and speaker. I help women go from feeling uncertain, uncomfortable, and struggling to experiencing a new sense of confidence, freedom, and vitality. My own story mirrors that of thousands of women that I have connected with through writing my book, speaking engagements, and coaching. Like you, I felt unprepared, unsupported, and at times dismissed by family, employers, and even doctors. That's why I created this podcast as a place of advocacy, offering facts, resources, and a community where you can become more empowered to take control of your menopause journey. Join us each week as we dive into honest, open, raw conversations on the topics that matter deeply to menopausal midlife women. From our changing bodies to our relationships, to dealing with menopause and aging at work and in society. My mission is to help you to tap into our collective wisdom so you can emerge more powerful, wiser, not just older, thriving and ready to embrace wholeheartedly the next chapter in your life. Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, and today We're going to be talking about culture and we're going to be talking about a particular book that I think is a wonderful example of culture and of women's journeys. And I'm delighted to be joined by the author, Henrietta Runter. She's an academic and she's also a writer and her book, Fade to Green, is simply fascinating and I'm so delighted that she's here to discuss it. Welcome to the show, Henrietta. Thank you so much, Clarissa. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You've had quite a personal journey. I mean, for my listeners, talk a little bit about your own journey that led to you writing this book. Right. So I think I'll start right at the very beginning where I was born. I was born in Romania as a Hungarian minority. My father was the National Olympic weightlifting coach to Romania And he defected when I was 10 years old. And my mother and I were allowed to join him in the United States two and a half years later. So I grew up in Texas, after which my parents settled down in Kansas. And I went to school in Kansas and then continued my studies in the U.S., but also in France and traveled a bit to Venezuela and Mexico. As you can imagine, as the only child of immigrant parents, as first-generation American, there was a lot of pressure on me to make my parents' immigration worthwhile. So I spent the next 10 years collecting degrees. I first majored in human biology, did all the pre-med requirements, then got a degree in French, a master's degree in French literature and then slowly returned to my first love, which was theater and literature. But I did a PhD then finally in French theater, in particular in the sociological effects of theater on the community. I then went on to to pursue an academic career and ended up teaching at many universities around the world, settled down in Hamburg, Germany, got married, have a German husband, and have three wonderful half-German, half-American, or, or I don't even know, half-American, <laughs> Hungarian <laughs> children. 
And then when my smallest child was four months old, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, which was actually, interestingly, the part when it started getting a little bit easier because uh, I was sick for four months. uh, Nobody knew what was wrong with me. And that was the most frightening part of it, actually. But then I was diagnosed and treated. Everything went well, except that I lost my voice for almost six months. And this was such a strange experience for me. I couldn't speak. I couldn't communicate. I couldn't teach. I couldn't read to my children. I couldn't sing. And I just realized how important my voice was to me. And that's when this desire to reconnect with the little girl that I think I I was before, you know, before everything, before life happens to me (laughs) and to kind of find my voice again. And that's when I I started a podcast, uh, which is Language and Culture with Dr. J. And I started, well, I started writing again and I started actually editing all the all the writing I had done before. So I I took the manuscripts that I had written when I was 12. Can you believe it? I mean, I was writing at age 12 already. I'd written a little novella. I took the poetry I wrote in my 20s, etc. And just started self-publishing this. So that's been my little path. And the book in question, the book that you mentioned is entitled We Fade to Green. And I published it under a Hungarian pseudonym, Anna Molnar, in honor of my Hungarian heritage. And the story behind that book is, well, I'm an only child and I now live in Germany and my parents are still in Kansas. So I have been trying to convince them to move in with us, to to live with us and spend their retirement here with us. And this has, uh, this has been quite difficult. They're quite set and settled in, in, in Kansas and settled in their ways. So the book actually <laughs> started as a way for me to convince my parents to move in with us. And because I didn't want it to be too autobiographical and I didn't want it to be too complicated either, sort of, and, and reflect our journey exactly, I decided to set the story in the United States where the daughter figure lives with her family, her three children and husband, and the parents, the grandparents in question, I pretended they were still living in Transylvania and would be moving from Transylvania to the US. And that's the, that's the, main, the main subject of the book. That's such a fascinating book. And we're going to talk a lot more about this. But Tell me a little bit about losing your voice. I mean, how that, you know, felt on an emotional level not to have a voice for a, a significant period of time. Well, it's funny, you know, we, you, you and I talked before the interview and, and we, we sort of compared notes and you asked me a couple of things and, and then how, how this was and that was. And I told you that, for example, my husband said that this, he of course jokes about this. So, so for anybody listening, I have a wonderful, sweet, nice, supportive husband. But when I lost my voice, he did joke that it was, <laughs> it was the calmest time of his life, you know? <laughs> That's a typical man thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible in some ways because, yeah, obviously I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't say anything. I couldn't express what I wanted. It really was for someone who likes to talk. And I think uh, just, just having listened to me so far, I think you and the listeners can tell I'm a talker. I like to talk and I, and I like to connect with people. 
in my everyday life, I chat everybody up. I, I talk to the baker, the butcher, the fish guy, the neighbors, the, the mailman. <laughs> I am a talker. And it really, really, it absolutely, completely paralyzed me. I could not reach people. I could, I, I, I had never experienced something like that. And, I, and I, really, I really got to thinking, I mean, I have lived in many different countries and I somehow never had the difficulty of language. You know, I, I picked up languages quite easily. I grew up with several languages. So that was never a limiting factor. I think a lot of people must experience this, this type, sort of being muted to a certain extent through language, for example. For me, it actually came through the loss of my voice. And that's amazing. Did you think that losing your voice actually brought forward other modalities for you? Like, for example, your writing. That's an interesting question. Right, right when I, when I didn't have my voice, I didn't start writing at that moment. But I, I think I went into myself a lot more. I started reflecting. I slowed down. I think what I what I told you in my my brief introduction, I really am the product of immigrant parents. And that meant that I was very driven. I collected degrees. I and in a you know, while I was collecting degrees, I was teaching kickboxing. I I got all my aerobics and step and all my certificates. I was teaching kids theater. I was doing all these things. In addition, I was publishing, I was going to conferences and everything was just so fast. And I was just kind of on this track of accomplish, accomplish, accomplish in my career, move forward the next step. And I think more than, than anything, like I said, I didn't write. I was too concerned with finding my voice again. And I, I, didn't write in that period. It's a very interesting. It's interesting that you that you asked that because it would have been logical, wouldn't it, to have written more? But I didn't write at that time. I but I did reflect a lot. I went into myself and thought a lot, and and kind of I think I reached an inner peace where I afterwards I could write from. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Actually, that. We are very outwardly focused. I mean, you love to talk. You're, I know having spoken to you face, you know, sort of Zoom to Zoom, shall we say, that you're an outgoing person, that this is bubbly and, and energetic and lively. And so that, that's, that's huge. Suddenly we can't do a part of ourselves. And yet that gave you a, something different and highly valuable that is really very, very beautiful, that that gave you that reflective space and took your should we say, foot off the pedal a little bit? So much. What, what I also realized, which was also interesting, how much of me was connected to my voice and, and my voice in, in, in the figurative and the symbolic sense as well. Like I said, I, I read to my children. Everything happened through my voice. I read to them. I sang to them. I asked them to do this or that. I taught. I teach through my voice. You know, my students have to hear me the connection that, that I had to, to, to the neighbors, et cetera, all of this was taken away. The, my voice played such a, such a significant, or still does, play such a significant role and, 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 and purpose in my life. I, and I just think that's, that's fascinating. I mean, how does it, or how did it feel when your voice came back? What was that 
those sort of moments when you realized it was coming back? Well, it came back gradually. I actually worked with a, a speech pathologist, was a speech therapist, Bettina Fisher. I, hi, you saved my life. She started, oh my goodness, she started actually really interesting relaxation exercises with me. And I just had to, she, she did Reiki on my neck. She massaged me. She, she was really brilliant. And so it wasn't something, it didn't just all of a sudden come back. I started regaining the deeper notes in a very, very soft, with a very, very soft voice, and then continued regaining the, the different octaves and, and the strength behind the voice. And it was, she was very, very important to me in, 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 in dealing with this. I, I mentioned that I, that I had cancer and I, I was offered in the, in the hospital, I was offered a support group and I was offered therapy. And it was interesting. I think I was very fortunate in, in the type of cancer that I had. I think that, that sort of, I don't think that my cancer story was, was typical for, for what many people have to go through. And so for me, the biggest, the biggest hurdle to get over after my surgery was really the voice. And, and that's the only quote unquote therapy that I asked for. And that was sort of really essential for me. But I think, like I said, this amazing speech therapist did more than just treat my vocal cords. She really had a holistic approach. And I think she really saw me and allowed me to feel loved by her, feel taken care by her, feel looked at as a, as a whole person, as, a, as, an, as an entire human being. And I think that's just a fantastic experience as well that has, without doubt, a profound healing effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think that I was, you know, I think that, that our lives, in our lives, I think it's really important to try to, and I don't say this lightly, and I don't say this sort of as a platitude. I think it's really important for us to always try to take every step of our life and whatever happens with us to us <laughs> and try to grow from it. And, and in some ways, I think that my losing my voice, my cancer, everything that happened to me contributed to who, who I am today and, and possibly allowed me to ground myself. Perhaps I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. Perhaps I would still be spinning <laughs> and, and accomplishing who knows what. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that, isn't it? I mean, that is a really interesting thought. One of the things you've alluded to right from the start is this being a child of, of immigrants. And I know that the book is also reflecting that. Talk about some of the cultural differences that you've observed between, obviously, your background as a Hungarian my, you know, minority member in Transylvania versus being in the US and then now in Germany, which is a very sort of strongly rooted Northern European culture. Well, I think that uh, cultural differences have been the light motif of, of my life. I like, as you mentioned, even in Romania, there were, of course, the, the differences in language and culture, in religion, in practices, in daily life, you know, between the Hungarians and the Romanian fractions. And then, of course, in, in the U.S., it was an absolute culture shock. I was from the Eastern Bloc, you know, this was in the 80s. 
And so it was a completely different world. I hadn't seen color TV. I, everything, sort of the difference between Eastern Europe and the U.S. in the 80s was huge. You cannot compare it to what it is today. There was no internet. There was no information. Clothing was different. Everything was different. So, so that was a very, very big difference. Coming from the U.S. to Germany, one of the things that I, that I noticed the most is the emotionality. I think otherwise there are no big hurdles to, 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 to overcome there is, I think that's sort of my culture, my Hungarian culture, also sort of having studied in France. So the French culture and the American culture, I think, is a little bit more bubbly and outgoing and emotional, if you will. So I think that's one of the biggest differences that I would point to right now. But the differences that are pointed out in We Fade to Green are more of a humorous nature. So in the book, you have these Transylvanian grandparents move to the U.S. And for example, the grandfather insists on getting the newspaper in his underwear. <laughs> so things like that. And and <laughs> and just, just for the record, if anybody's listening who knows my parents, my father, for the record, does not get the newspaper in his underwear. But what it's modeled on, he does still insist on mowing the lawn, for example, in his Speedo, which, which is just in a sort of suburban, upper-middle-class Kansas neighborhood is just not the thing to do. So, no, but uh, but a lot of Hungarian German people would do ex- Northern European people, European people might do exactly that, <laughs> right? So, so this exactly this body awareness or or, or even nudity or or awareness of nudity are just the, the the cultural approach is just completely different. In the book, for example, there is also, uh, there are a lot of problems with the homeowners association. And if, uh, if Americans are listening, I think you will agree with me that the homeowners association is an entity. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an institution in the United States. And the homeowners association is quite strong and likes to determine how long the grass is and how things are done. And these Transylvanian grandparents uh, just tend to clash with the homeowners association and, uh, and uh, very, uh, the humorous uh, surprise from this as well. But I get that being here in Sweden. It, it's probably a little bit more subtle, but I think there is definitely that sense of homeowners association here, although it's not overt. It's sort of like suggested to you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that maybe you should, you know. But let's talk about the book. I mean, we fade green. So tell me a little bit more about the, the, the storyline and, and how that evolves, because I know that the, there's a, it's a very, very beautiful, beautiful story, but for the listeners. So We Fade to Green is about cultures and generations coming together. So these elderly Transylvanian grandparents move to the U.S., move in with their daughter and her family and non-American grandparents there living with them. It is difficult for their daughter, who all of a sudden has the responsibility of taking care of her three children, her husband, her family, her job. And of course, she then ends up neglecting herself. 
And it is tremendously difficult for the grandparents in question as well, who are making this significant move in their 80s. And what I tried to depict at the beginning of the book was I tried to let everything go wrong. You know, everything you can imagine goes wrong and everybody's unhappy and Oh, and there's just chaos and fighting and and it's just not looking good. And of course, from that, letting each character develop and letting the family grow together and come to an understanding of each other's cultures, of each other's needs, etc. One of the characters that develops the most, perhaps, is the grandmother, the Onyu character. She is at the beginning uh, depressed. She's sad. She's wearing black. Her hair. She's she's the, the granddaughter describes her at a, at a at a certain point as a molding chili pepper. You know, sort of a a black molding chili pepper. And she she's just <laughs> she's just always uh, oh she's just sleeping and and doesn't want to do anything. And she grows into this super hero, geriatric, vampire, witch character with an incredible, beautiful side with a giving, loving nature. She reaches out to to her grandkids. She loves them. She goes also and tries to to go for her her girlhood dream. She's portrayed in the in the book as a pharmacist who works her her whole life, her entire life as a pharmacist and but she all her life wanted to to be a florist to to make beautiful bouquets and beautiful flower arrangements. And so without giving anything away at the end of the book, she gets to live out her dream. She has a little boutique that she opens in the front yard and, and welcomes neighbors and everybody to her bouquets. And of course, she has, she grows as a character. She, she has this mythical side to her. She, you're never quite sure if she's a vampire or a witch or just, just sort of super strong. And she does these little, she has these little ch- these little spells that she kind of seems to put on everybody and make everybody harmonious and united. And and, and she of course also grows in in uh, sort of visually. She she goes into wearing more greens and and becoming more alive. Oh, that's just fantastic. And in many ways, that's exactly, I think, the journey that many women take, isn't it? That we've spent a lifetime pleasing other people. And then all of a sudden, as we get older, we start to do the things that we've put on the shelf. I mean, I think that what you've spoken about there, about the grandmother's journey, is so absolutely... Uh, what we see so many women doing, isn't it? We spend our lifetime serving others and then we turn that into serving ourselves and serving our communities differently. I think so as well. And that was very important to me. You know, I think that that this, when I lost my voice and decided to kind of focus on myself, I I didn't stop caring for my children. I didn't stop caring for my, my husband or my house or my job. Or I just started noticing myself as well. I, I just allowed myself to be taken into consideration as well, finally, after years. 
And that's that's a one aspect of the book. And character that is Anna, and she's she's uh, in the book and in the beginning she's she has she has let her hair grow gray. And this is not against any of the ladies out there who might have gray hair. I think actually uh, gray hair is beautiful. In this particular book, she's not choosing to have gray hair. It's not a statement or something that she's choosing. She's just letting herself go. And she's not sleeping. And she's always saying that she just needs to be efficient. And But she's still, you know, she's bathing her mother. And she's cooking these lavish meals for the family. And she's taking care of everybody. And she's doing her job properly. And she's just falling apart and the the mother character she also grows in the book and and decides to go part time with her job she decides to sort of she decides to take care of herself as well and she decides to approach life differently and at the end of we fade to green i kind of portray a utopia a way we could approach life a way we could look at life for example, one aspect of life that is a problem at the beginning of the book, the kids need to be taken to music lessons and sports and here and there and everywhere. And by the end of the book, they decide to just come together as a family. They decide to play ping pong and to play football outside and to grow vegetables and to and to be a community and through this there is more of an emphasis on the on the on the people on sharing time on on authentic connections which in 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 turn also take this time pressure away and allow people to focus on themselves as well i think that henrietta is incredibly important as, if you like, a metaphor for where we are today. I think many of us have noticed through these times of being locked down, of not being able to go wherever we've wanted, how important our families and communities really are. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. I I think that's I mean, you know, in my personal life, that's one of the things that's also really, really of absolute essence and importance. I buy only local products. It's really important for me to know where my vegetables come from. I go to a butcher where the animals come from the area and are treated kindly and allowed to be free. I believe in using local handymen in, you know, in taking care of the neighbors, the elderly neighbors in actually participating in their lives, etc. So so that's something I, I really, really believe in. And I think you're not alone in that. I think that this is more than just one person or a small group of people. This is very much a movement without being non, we're not as if we're anti-globalization, but we're also recognizing maybe the value of community and that we we don't just want to have everything from an anonymous source that sort of appears from nowhere without any sense of its journey. Well, you know, there's a little saying in Hungarian, it's a little like a proverb or a little saying actually, and it's, I'll just say it for you, it's in Hungarian, but it's, and <laughs> it basically says something new in my tummy and well, to hell with, with being ill. 
And it's something that I learned when I was a little kid. And every spring, we would say this every single time we ate something new because we we would have to get through the winter on the potatoes that my parents bought in October, on the apples they bought in October, November and put away for the for the winter, on jam that they made in the fall, on the one pig that was slaughtered and, and then made into uh, smoked meats and salamis and sausages and, and everything for several, three, four families. On so we ate the same thing for for on cabbage things that that still grew in the winter and so in the spring we discovered all the new vegetables and fruit and what nature can give us and so we would say this little saying to there's something new in my tummy and I think that's something that we've we've disconnected with we expect to have mangoes in the middle of winter we expect to have everything at our right? Uh, right there at all times. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I agree with you as well. I mean, it's not that I refuse to buy a mango in the winter. No, but perhaps we don't have to buy it every single week and not in the quantities. So I think it's all about that. And I think it's not, I don't think one has to be against globalization or against worldliness or against sharing and countries doing trade together, etc. And still, support local products and communities. I think the two don't have to compete with each other. No, I think they, they're not mutually exclusive. I think they can coexist. And, and, and as you were speaking, it reminded me to a certain extent of my own childhood where, you know, my grandmother picked berries or she sent us out to pick berries and rose hips and she made jams and she made bases for juice and, and you know, maybe not the, the pigs, but certainly we had to pick apples and I hated it as a child. We had to wrap them in newspaper and lay them in, in boxes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but but there wasn't there wasn't the abundance of of things just to buy in a supermarket that there is today. No, 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 there wasn't. No, absolutely. And of course, that's um, what what you describe is also very time consuming. And so that's the question that I, I think also we would have to then face as as a society. I think in the olden days, as you will, some of this work and some of this pressure came on women, you know, sort of women had to face this and deal with it. They were responsible for this. And again, like in, in the book, it is not just the, the, the two women, it is a community, it is the whole family, all of this collectively. Exactly. What do you think the book offers as a message to today's women? I had to think of uh, just when you when you asked me that I had to think of uh, I don't know if you're aware of the movie fried green tomatoes and also the book of course well it's <laughs> it's it's a little bit uh, sim a similar message and it's about women allowing themselves to be weak women allowing themselves to have problems to question things and also allowing themselves to reach for their goals, for their dreams, to reach for those ideals that they have in their minds and to keep trying to, to strive for that, keep trying to, to accomplish that and to be able to ask for help to sort of, that's what I mean with, with to admit certain weaknesses and 
at the same time, get strength from that and focus in on and wean in on, 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 on the, on the gifts and the wonderful personalities and presence that we bring for into life. I think that's a very beautiful message that many women, and I hope my listeners take on board that we need, that asking for help isn't really a weakness, but being able to do so can really be quite transformative for our lives. Absolutely. And never giving up. I think that's, that's something that, you know, I, I really thought also with the books, I, it's not that I, I, <laughs> I think I'm a very confident person, but it's not that I don't have any self doubt. It's not that I don't ask myself, oh my goodness, have I gotten too old? That can I, can I still do this? And I think that's okay. And I try to forgive myself <laughs> every time. I think what's important is to, you know, have the doubts, question it, and then get up and keep going. And, and to, and to, if there is this drive, this energy, this need in us, if we want to do something, you know, for example, with the acting, perhaps I'll be an elderly actress one day. And, and, it, and if there's just that one movie that I'll, that I'll make or, you know, sort of, I think it's never, ever too late. And certainly I hope that for me, for my writing, it's not. No, definitely not. And do you have any plans for a, another book to follow from We Fade to Green? Well, We Fade to Green, when I wrote it, actually, there's a second part already that I have planned out and I have the events and the characters and everything, but I didn't include it in the book. The book was getting too long. So I decided that I would for sure have a second part to it. The grandparents are going to, the book ends this way as well. I don't think I'm giving anything away. The grandparents are going to take the family back to Europe on vacation. And so that's the second part of, of We Fade to Green. And I will absolutely write that. Perhaps there are other adventures with Anu and Apu with the, uh, these uh, superhero grandparents that I would like to share in the, in the future. But right now, Conkley, there is one other book in the planning in, 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 in a, as a concrete plan. And then, of course, there, I do write under other pseudonyms as well. I write poetry and more sort of more for younger audience. Uh, that's with Anna, with uh, Naira Nabro. And I do have a book entitled Paris and Chicago Out, which is a book of poetry, very passionate love poems. And there are two more pseudonyms that I have. Renee Caravage is, uh, writes plays, and I have a play that I just finished that will also be published in the next few months. It's entitled Joanne Thornton and Her Last Will. It's a satire about retirement. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Henry Hills, I, I, I did want to have a male pseudonym as well. Henry Hills write every, writes everything that's inappropriate. And he only has a very short uh, sort of art work out right now. And that's entitled Farting in Public. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good one. That's a good one. <gasps> Dedicated to the Inu goddess of farting. So <laughs> that sounds perfect. And I think that I, 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 there's just one more that I would mention, which I'm really proud of, and I, that's that I publish under my maiden name, and that is all about my parents, my father's immigration, and our move to Texas, and that is entitled Life with Coach Pop. That should be coming out this fall um, under my na maiden name, Henriette Yavarek. 
And in that particular book, I will include my diary from when I was 12 and the little novella that I wrote when I was 12 and react to this as an adult. And that's that's what the that book is about. So I hope I will continue writing. And yeah, I think I, I, I see it for myself. I hope we do too. Henrietta, where can people get Henrietta? Where can people get hold of your book? So I, I'm self-published, you know, sort of since I started publishing a little bit late, there was no time to waste. So I did decide to self-publish. Also because, you know, I've been teaching at the university level for 28 years. I have so many dear friends who are editors and who can proofread my documents. I have a wonderful friend who's a graphic artist. So I felt that I could still deliver quality in my books without a, a, a bigger house, without a big publisher. And so I self-publish and I self-publish on Amazon. So absolutely, you can go to bookstores and actually have the bookstore order the book for you. Or you can just look for the books yourself on Amazon, amazon.com, amazon.de, Amazon FR. We're all over the world. The easiest way, because I am still an unknown and not one of the you know best-selling authors, the easiest way to find the books is to go on my Instagram page, which is at Quadil. So that's Q-U-A-D-Y-L-L-E. And there in my bio, all the books are directly linked. Or you can also visit my website, kulturreum.com. That's C-U-L-T-U-R-E-U-M.com. And there the books are linked as well. Fabulous. We will put those in the show notes so that the listeners can follow up and definitely check out We Fade to Green. It just sounds such a wonderfully delightful and yet meaningful book. I'm be excited to read it. It's a book that you can read as an entire family. I think that, that adults, women especially, will find something in it and will really enjoy the humor. I think elderly grandparents will, will enjoy it. I think kids, I mean, I read it to our seven-year-old, but of course she recognizes the characters a little bit more, but I would say sort of kids from eight to 10 years of age would also very much enjoy it. I love that, reading as a family. Henriette, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, firstly, your passion, but also bringing such, you know, profound books of meaning and culture to our world. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for letting me speak to you and to reach your audience. It's really fun. I, I love talking about these books. It was wonderful. Thank you so much, Clarissa. Thank you for listening. If you have loved or liked this episode, then I would be deeply grateful if you would head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. My mission is to reach as many women as possible, menopausal midlife women who may be feeling alone and asking questions, why do I feel this way? Thriving Through Menopause is all about a community and our collective wisdom. You matter to me. Your feedback, opinions and stories matter to me and I would love to hear from you so drop me an email clarissa at clarissachristensen.com I genuinely want your feedback and your ideas on the topics that you would like to hear more of on this podcast 
And if you are a woman who feels that they are struggling alone through menopause and you need more support, pop over to my website, clarissachristiansen.com. You can find free resources and you can book a one-to-one discovery call with me. Let's start conversation. Thank you once again for listening. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the best ever Big Mac burger. Take it away, Hamburglar. Rubble, rubble. He said, there's more special sauce in every bite. Rubble, rubble. He said, rubble, rubble. Rubble, rubble. Rubble, rubble indeed, my friend. Try the juicier Big Mac and get 20% off any purchase of $10 or more. Only on the app. Comparison to prior classic burgers, limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid once per day. Excludes tax. Must be opted into rewards. ba ba ba